So we're into the third part of this series on the book of James and, um, and it's this idea again about how faith and it's not really faith if it's just up in our heads or even in our hearts. It's, it's faith when, when it comes out in, in our lives. And, and, you know, James is trying to help us understand that, that proper relationship between um, faith and, and actions and to know that they are connected and they have to be connected. Otherwise, it's not true faith. You know, I was thinking about this, this question and that, you know, if you were to ask different people this question, how they might answer it. And you hear it in culture sometimes, but the question is like, why do people help other people? You know, we see it happen a lot. You know, you might see people, you know, on the side of the road, you know, their car breaks down, somebody, you know, stops. Of course, you know, 99% drove by, but one person stopped to help. And you might go, you know, why did they, you know, why did this, this person stop to help? You know, what was the, you know, what was the reason um, that, that motivated them to do that? Um, you know, and, and even when you think about how people help just, in society, you know, what are the what are the different reasons that people do it? I don't mean like the surface reasons. Like, like the first reason, obviously, if you if you see someone like, you know, carrying a lot of stuff, trying to get in a door, it's just because you want to help them. But I think when when they start to really like study deep down at the core, why do we do those things? And of course, you can study the converse: why do we not do those things? Um, you know, that's, that's where we start to think, like, what's going on there? And when you talk to different people and they're being a little more honest and forthright, you know, like, they might say something like, well, if I was in that situation, I would want someone to help me. You know, that, they might say something like that. They might say something like, you know, um, I just have this feeling that it's all going to come around, like some kind of karma thing is going to happen. It's going to... If I, if I do enough good things, it's going to come around. You know, some people, I mean, there was actually a whole charitable giving campaign based on this. Why should you give? Because it feels so good. That's why you should give. And, and so people think about giving. They think about helping. But a lot of times there's, there's something attached to it. And I just, even though we don't on the surface always think this, I, th I think it's still true that it's rare that people give without expecting something in return. And again, the something isn't necessarily something given, like a thing, but they expect something. They expect some benefit that maybe they think they're making the world a better place or maybe they're doing it because it's a, you know, it's a way to look after my own. And, you know, maybe for even more selfish reasons. And these reasons aren't necessarily bad. They're just different from what would be called unconditional love, unconditional helping, unconditional giving. And, you know, this is the, you know, the, the only way we kind of know this is when we don't actually get the thing that we think we're supposed to get. You know, whether it's a thank you, an acknowledgement, uh, some kind of, um, you know, 
effect that it has on the person that you helped. When we don't get it, then we realize like, oh yeah, okay, I'm not getting it. But a lot of times we don't really see it. And I think that's why it's so important to see what Jesus says about giving and loving and the standard he sets, which we've talked about before, which is this impossible standard where he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul, bless those who curse you. Wow. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. You got Jesus, son of God, saying it. And then you have Paul, the guy who wrote so much of the New Testament, and we look at him as perhaps the greatest Christian of all time. And they're both saying the same thing. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. You see, when you love your enemies, you're not doing it for the greater good. When you, when you love your enemies, when you bless when you, when you want God to bless those who curse you, you're not doing it because you're going to benefit. And we know this. We know this for, for two reasons, okay? You know, the, the, and the most important reason that we know this is because history shows us this. History shows us that loving your enemies doesn't magically transform them. This only happens in the movies. In the movies, you know, you do this you know, this great gesture, and I was watching, um, it's, some of you, it's kind of a highbrow movie, it was a Despicable Me, and, and the villain in Despicable Me at the beginning who becomes the hero, you know, he, he's adopted these three daughters, which I don't know what he was thinking, but he had three daughters, and so he, he, he adopts them because he wants to use them, he doesn't really care about them. But then there's this moment where he's in great need and he doesn't have the money to do what he needs to do, which is basically shrink the moon. So he doesn't have money to do it and, and the three daughters bring him their piggy bank. And all of a sudden, he changes. Right? That, it happens in the movies. It doesn't happen in real life. The vast majority of enemies who you love will still hate you. If you're doing it because you think that they're going to just suddenly like go, wow, that's so awesome. You know, we talked about the story about the, the Anabaptist leader who, who had been, you know, he had been, um, you know, um, arrested because, you know, he wasn't conforming to the, to the beliefs of, 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 his, of the church in his area. And, and he, he somehow escapes and he gets away, and, and when he has to cross this kind of like a moat, because he had been held in this castle, and it's frozen, so he gets across. But then the guy who's chasing him doesn't. He, he, the, the ice cracks and he falls in. And, and the Anabaptist leader can, can just go, and he, he could have every reason to keep running. He, he could have been thinking like, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for all of those other Anabaptists. I'm doing it because we believe we have found the true gospel. 
He could have had every reason, and I would have had all those reasons too, to not help this person. But he, he's so gripped by the word of God that it says, love your enemies. He goes back and he helps the guy out. And the guy arrests him. And eventually, the leader is killed. This is what reality tells us. This is what history tells us. If you think loving your enemies will somehow magically change them and benefit you or benefit society as a whole, don't fool yourself. That's not why God tells us to love our enemies. It's a high standard. It's not expecting anything in return. It's loving, it's giving, it's helping just because it's who you are. James is going to try to unpack that. He's going to try to unpack that in a kind of an interesting way in this second chapter. Remember, the, the big part of this letter is this letter is focusing on you know, true faith and, and action, and that's, that's it. And, and now James is giving us more detail. He's, he's laid out three major areas. You know, one of them is our, that whole thought, you know, thought, speech, that area. So that's one area, that if you have true faith, that area is going to be different. It's going to be under control. That whole, from feeling, thought, speech. So that's one. The second one is this idea of, of, of ethics and, and what the world values and how the world thinks. You know, are you going to be, you know, affected by that? Is that what's directing you? Or are you going to follow what God says. That's the second thing. And the third thing is, how do you deal with the most needy in your community? And in this particular, you know, he's talking about the church. How do you deal with the widows and orphans? Are you helping them? So those are the three areas. And what's interesting is, um, those of you who came on Wednesday night, um, we ran out of time and I, and I started with this question of, which of the three areas are covered in this story that he's about to tell us? And I told you, think about it, but then we never got back to it. Well, the answer is all three. All three of those areas. This is not illustrating just one of these points. It's illustrating all three of those. That whole thought, feeling, speech, that how do we care about the poor and how we don't live and think and value what the world values. So let's look at that. In chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 13, we're just going to read the first seven first. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of God. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? So if you came Wednesday night, if you, and if, by the way, if you want to, ever see the Wednesday night. We record them. We can send them to you. But if you came Wednesday night, then, then you'll, you, you know why this is the case. But James is actually presenting a hypothetical situation. He is in no way saying this has happened. It is really clear in the Greek and everything else that this is a hypothetical situation. And he's kind of keeping it somewhat general. And the reason he's keeping it general is because he doesn't want anybody to mistake and say, this only applies in this particular situation. He wants people to understand that the principle that he's about to give to them applies everywhere all the time. He's just using this illustration to make the point stronger. And, and it's kind of, an, uh, kind of an odd kind of like illustration that he's using because we're not even 100% sure that he's even referring to something that the early church did. But in sense, in a, what, what he's saying is, he's saying this, what this is, is it's a situation where a rich and a poor person have come in to the church, not the, like a worship service, which is what some people think, but they've come in to a meeting of the church to decide a dispute between the two of them. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if this were to happen, if the church were to have to decide on this dispute between a poor man and a rich man, and you act this way, that's what he's saying. See, the reason he keeps it kind of general, where, where we don't really get it, is because you could say like, oh, this doesn't apply to me because, you know, I, I never decide on disputes between poor people and rich people. And that's, again, not James's point. James is trying to make this bigger point. He's trying to make this bigger point, and so he's using this very kind of general illustration to make the point. And the point is right, right up there at the, the beginning. Show no partiality. Show no partiality. The way, I, the way I say it is, you know, the faithful do not value people based on wealth, power, status, or influence. You see, all these three problems are combined in this one problem. How are you treating the most needy? Are you valuing people the way the world values people or are you valuing them the way God values them? And then what are you thinking and feeling and how is that coming out in what you say? All of these things are coming together. And, and James kind of builds on that point because he, he's, he's actually saying, you know, guys, all of you know that you would be drawn to helping the rich person, or at least you would, you would think that mo many of us would be that way. And he's saying, why would that be the case? So he here's, here's, some, you know, here's some things for you to think about. God chose the poor. God chose the poor. 
He chose the poor. He chose what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He didn't just choose the poor. He chose the foolish. He chose those that the world considers as unimportant. And what's amazing that James doesn't know at this point, nobody knows at this point, in not a very long, just a few decades, those poor, oppressed people are transformed by the gospel in such a way that they become so influential, they, be con they become considered a threat to the Roman Empire, and eventually, eventually, they become the official religion of Rome. Now, there's a problem with that that I'm not going to talk about today, about becoming the official religion of anything. But understand, there's, Jesus is come with this message of the gospel that's transforming the world, but not doing it the way the world would do it. If the way the world does it is, they, you know, you, you kind of collect your best and your brightest and your bravest, and you get them together and say, now let's go, let's start it. Let's get going. But who is Jesus choosing even for his disciples? We know they're not the brightest. They spend three years with the master teacher and they can't get the most basic concepts of what he's trying to tell them. Now, I'm going to tell you that I'm not saying I would have done any better. I'm just telling you they're not the brightest. And, and we, we know that he didn't choose them because they were exceptional people. No, he chose them because he wanted to display his power through them. And what we find is from these very humble beginnings, we see God's power displayed in a way that we wouldn't otherwise see. You see, if what happens in the fourth century when the Roman emperor, you know, starts to favor Christianity had happened in the first century, then we wouldn't see this incredible work of God. We would see that's the way, that's what human beings do. They, they, let me get the most powerful people on my side, then, then we'll make some noise. Well, he's pointing out to them that it's the rich, and he's not saying every rich person, I just want you to make sure you understand that. But he's saying, the rich, who's more likely to drag you into court? Who's more likely to accuse you of blaspheming God? Who's more likely to throw you into jail and oppress you? And everybody James is writing to, a lot of these are early, uh, the first generation Christians, they're, they're Jewish people who, who are now you know, accepted Christ as the Messiah. They know, it's in memory. Some of them have, Paul, James is writing to the, the 12 tribes that are dispersed. The reason they're dispersed is because they were persecuted and they weren't persecuted just by the regular Jewish people, they were persecuted by the powerful. They know. But he's, 
He's telling them, like, why then do, would you still favor them? If you do, it's because you're still gripped by the way that the world thinks and the values that the world has. You're still gripped by that. You still don't really trust that God can do amazing and miraculous things through anyone. Now, I want you to understand what, what the, the Bible is saying here because I think some well-meaning Christians have taken some of these messages and they've kind of mixed them up and, and there's, there's some problems. And the first thing is that God chose the poor. Remember, when God chooses... He doesn't choose because you're awesome. When God chooses Israel, he doesn't choose the people of Israel because they're the most powerful nation, they're they're the smartest people, they're the hardest workers, no. In fact, he chooses them at their time of weakness. God's choosing the poor and he's gonna use the poor and you might go, well, you know, oh, that sounds weird. Like, why is he using the poor? Well, he's not just using them. He's also empowering them. He's freeing them. But he's freeing them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's empowering them through discipleship and learning. But you also see there's the meeting of the needs through the community of faith. Because the thing that people get mixed up, I think, sometimes, is they think that the only evil people in the world are the people who have money or who have power. And that people who don't have money and don't have power are good or better. And again, history does not show this to be true. But you know what? I don't really care what history shows to be true in this sense. What I care about is what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that poor people have the same problem that rich people do. They have the same need. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ to change their lives. They're just as gripped by sin. You know, this is probably, you probably heard this before, but I think it bears repeating. The Bible never says being rich is evil. It never says having money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Loving money is not dependent upon whether you have it or not. You can love money even when you don't have it. So there's Choosing of the poor is not because God says the, tr- the poor are better than the rich. That's not why. It's because in choosing the poor, he's being consistent with what he says in 1 Corinthians, which is, I chose those who, who, you know, not very many of you are wise. Not many, very many of you are noble. Not very many of you have any status, any power. I chose you. And one of the reasons I chose you in that state is one, so that you realize it's not about you, but it's about what God is going to do through you. 
but also as a testimony to the world to show what I can do when I get a hold of people. And so the faithful, they don't value people based on wealth, power, status, or influence. That's what the world does. You see, Paul's saying you help the helpless. I mean, not Paul, sorry. James is saying you help the helpless. And if you're helping the helpless, you're not helping them so that someday they can help you. You're just helping them. They can't help you. If you're helping the enemy, they don't want to help you. You're not helping them so that they'll help you. And then when you help the stranger, a lot of times the stranger doesn't even know you helped them. We received a, a very nice kind of thank you message from uh, Preswa Norsilas, who is the guy that we work with in, in Haiti, about how you know, blessed they were by the, the gift that you guys gave to, to them to help them buy hygiene um, materials for, you know, for the mountain villages. Again, you guys help strangers. They don't, they don't even know you. They don't know you helped them. And you helped them. You just did. And that's great. And that's awesome. If we're going to get to this idea of unconditional love, we have to stop thinking about what's in it for me or how does it come back to me or how does it you know, benefit you know, the things that, that I think should be benefited and just realize that unconditional love is that exactly that. It's unconditional. But get the big point that he's saying here. He's not saying, he's not saying fix your bias against the poor by being biased against the rich. That is not what he's saying. That is what the world is saying today. And the world's been saying it for a while. Fix your bias against the poor by being biased against the rich, being biased against the successful, being biased against the accomplished, those in charge. That is not what James is saying. He's saying no partiality, that you have to stop Thinking in those terms that you're valuing people by what they have or what they don't have. You don't fix the problem by valuing people who have less, more, than people who have more. You don't fix the problem. You just flip it. Still the same fundamental problem. You're not valuing people the way God values people. And so many Christians are getting sucked in to this argument. That somehow everybody who's successful and who's in power is evil. And that everybody who, do, who who's, who's not, you know, doesn't have any power is good. And we got to choose a side. If James is saying anything, he's saying, stop choosing sides. Stop choosing sides. You should only be on one side. That's God's side. And God has just said, show no partiality. None. Don't reinvent it. Don't reconfigure it. Get rid of partiality.
The principle is love everyone, help everyone. But when you especially help the helpless, and when you especially help the stranger, when you especially help the enemy, it is a greater display of God's love. But you should also help your family and your friends. Not just a few. He has to point this out about the stranger and about the helpless and about the enemy because that goes against what's naturally in us. We, we do want to help. You know, it's just kind of naturally to help our friends and help our family, whatever we consider our group, whatever that is. It, it's natural for us to want to help them. But see, that, it's not as great a display of God's love. Now, you might think like, well, you don't know my brother, how hard it is to love him, you know. I don't know your brother, right? So I'm just talking in general. In general, people could say a lot of things. They could be like, you know, sure, his mom's a fan. She has to be, you know, or sure, you help your friends. And they're not necessarily seeing it as a display of this unconditional love because they, 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 they realize, you know, I would do the same thing. Even if you are doing it out of unconditional love, they don't necessarily see it because they, they would say, I would do it the same thing with just how I love. But that's harder to say when you're loving your enemies. It's harder to say when you're, when you're loving those who really can't do anything for you. And so it's, it's, it's hard to understand, this isn't an easy thing that, that, that James is saying. If it was easy, he wouldn't have to say it. But it is one of these things that, that, you know, that has to be emphasized because otherwise, even if we have different motivation in our love for our family and our friends, it still looks the same. You see, this is one of the problems. And by the way, this is just... This is just general advice. It has kind of connected to the scripture today, but maybe not. So just take it for what it's worth. But here's general advice. One of the things that I realized when I was younger, and I, I hated when people did it to me, and then I tried hard not to do it to them, and that was when I assumed someone's motives. Like you do something, and I assume I know why you did it. And I hated when people did that to me, when they just assumed they knew why I did it. And I'm sure you feel the same way. And, and, and then the other way too, it's like, you know, I didn't want to do that to other people, assuming their motives. All kind of problems occur. You, I'll give you, um, you know, from experience, you want to make your marriage relationship worse, assume the motives of your spouse. Just assume you know why they do or didn't do whatever they did. You know, you, they, you know, one of us in my marriage leaves their clothes on the floor. And so if, if you assume that, that, you know, why he slash she does that, right? If you assume that, you can create all kinds of monsters based on that assumption and, and vice versa, right? We hate that. 
yet that's what the world has become. The world has become assigning motives to other people. In fact, it's gotten so much so that you can't even have dialogue with anybody because if I assume your motives and then I ask you about it or you tell me, no, that's not my motives, I will tell you, well, it's because you're such a victim of your situation that you don't even know your own motives. That's how bad it's gotten. You realize we can't have healthy relationships if we cannot, if we can, if we can, first of all, assume everybody's motives and we're not even going to listen to them when they tell us what their motives are. There's no basis for healthy, trusting relationships. Let me get back to the specifics of this text. We all have something. We all have something that causes us to prejudge others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's kind of a survival skill. So if you go back to, you know, when we were more like in nature as human beings and, and we're kind of going along and we see, you know, there's the animal that looks like it wants to eat us, okay? Then we learn when he eats our friend to be careful around that animal. Then we see the other animal that's not going to eat us. We're going to treat that animal differently too. And it's only natural that we start, you know, seeing different people, treating people differently. It's kind of a survival skill that we have. And if, you know, we, we all do it, you know, if in a, the time it really comes out is if you're walking down a lonely street at night, the, you know, you see somebody, you are prejudging. We all do. It's all part of just, again, it's a survival school. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But, again, just understand that that, be, that becomes something that's useful for us to, to survive. But we take that same attitude and we bring it to things that are not dangerous. They're not life-threatening. It's not a survival skill anymore. It's something else. And it affects how we treat one another. And we all have things that we prejudge. We all have things where we show partiality. And you might go, well, I don't know what mine are. Just wait. They'll come out. <laughs> Eventually, they'll be revealed. That we favor certain people over others. That we're more predisposed to believe certain people than others. And again, the whole idea is it's pre. It's like we don't really have a basis for it. This is not the same thing as somebody who says, you know, who's promised you 10 times something and hasn't followed through. That's different. That's not prejudging. That's post-judging. Okay, prejudging is just assuming that the next person who seems like that person is going to do the same thing. We all do it. James is telling us we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of that. That we have to be, we have to see that, that, that God wants us to see people and value people the way he does. Well, he 
comes back to this thought by quoting this familiar scripture, it's from Leviticus, but he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so he just sums it up. He says, you know, don't show partiality, but instead fulfill this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new commandment. It's been around a long time. And of course, Jesus defines neighbor for us. It's more than just the person who lives next door. But get this first point that he's making. If you want to keep this command, you cannot show partiality. They, they don't go together. You cannot have both. If you're going to prejudge people, if you're going to show partiality, then you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. They are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. It's impossible. But understand, whenever I talk about loving your neighbor as yourself, whenever I talk about love, I feel compelled to make sure that you understand this really important distinction, that there's a distinction between love and the expressions of love. As Christians, was when we studied 1 John, what we learned is that if you are truly a Christian, if you truly have faith, then you have God's nature, which is to love, which means it is not a choice whether to love or not. There's no choice. It's who you are. The choice is how you're going to express that love. And you're going to express that love to different people in different situations in different ways. Sometimes expressing the love just means shutting up and not saying anything. And sometimes expressing the love means to say something and get involved. Sometimes expressing the love is, is just praying for somebody. And sometimes it means, you know, trying to help, you know, help them in, in other ways by either talking to them, counseling them, helping them get the help that they need. And you could go on for, you know, all day with millions and millions of examples of how to show love in different situations. And, you know, if, if you, you know, if your spouse decided that the only expression of love they were ever going to do was to give you, you know, one rose a day, you know, that might be charming for a little while. But if that's the only way they're ever going to express love, you would you know, start wondering because situations are occurring that don't call for a flower. They call for something else. So even with the same person, expressions of love are different depending on the context. But I think it's important that we remember that. But don't, let, don't confuse expressions of love with actually loving. You have no choice but to love, not because you're being forced, but because it is your nature. 
And where we get it right and we get it wrong sometimes is how we show it. James is telling us, one of the things is, if you show partiality, you are not showing love. It is not an expression of love. You know, and, and this is, you know, one idea, of the, one thought about the expressions of love is if, is if you've ever had a friend who's like way wealthier than you. Now, some of you, I know it's not possible, but for some of us, it's really easy. Most of our friends are that. And, and, and then you're like thinking about what do you get them for a birthday or a Christmas gift? And, and it's, it's, it's hard because you know anything they want to buy, they can buy, right? My, my daughters recently have been giving us gifts that, you know, I mean, obviously, Cheryl and I can... You know, we, we have the things we need and all, but, and they keep asking me what I want and they, and I tell them and then they don't want to buy me a new truck. So, um, so, so what, what they've done though, I think is way better than a truck. They've, they've taken things about us and about them and they've, they've made things and they're not those drawings they made when they were in kindergarten where we couldn't tell what they were, um, they actually are really nice and it's thoughtful and it's caring and it's an expression. It's an expression that, that they can make and it doesn't have to come down to expressing by how much somebody uh, spends or you know, anything else. Expressions of love. And, and when we do this, and when it talks about the law of liberty, what he's talking about is he's talking about the Mosaic law as it's been uh, kind of reinterpreted through Jesus. And it's the law of liberty because it sets us free from our slavery to the world and our slavery to our nature and our slavery to sin. You see, if we don't have this new nature of God's love, then we just live by our old nature, which is largely, like we talked about, we do things somehow out of self-interest. And we're kind of slaves to it. We're slaves to it, and, and we, don't, we don't see any way out. That whole idea of loving your enemies, that, that goes, that's radically against, that is radically against our our normal nature. That's not what you do with your enemies. And if you do it, you only do it because you think that's going to make them into your friend. But the law of liberty sets us free. Sets us free from our enslavement to our, our old nature. And James has been saying some really harsh things. If you go back to chapter 1 all the way to, you know, to what we're, where we are now. He's been seeing some really hard things. You know, he's been using some really strong language. You know, he, he, he tells us that in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. It's like, oh, that's pretty harsh. Couldn't you have just said it's damaged? Couldn't you just said it's something that needs to be worked on? He said it's worthless. You, you can go even to 
what we, some of what we read today and he's making these harsh statements after harsh statements. He's just told us, you cannot love and show partiality. Remember when we talked about John, you know, we said the way John presents you know, the idea of love, and he talks about light and darkness, love and hate, that there's no safe middle ground. And so many Christians want to be in the safe middle ground. I don't love, but I don't hate. James is doing the same thing. He's taking away that safe middle ground. And just when you think he's going to back off, just when you think he's going to give us some relief, he then says, if you break one law, you broke them all. You break one law, you broke them all. So instead of like giving us relief, he, he makes it even harder. And if James ended this way, if this section ended this way, that would be kind of uh, depressing if we're being honest. But he doesn't. It's this really clever way, he, he ends this section in verse 13. He says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is taking care of two things. He's taking care of those thoughts within us that as we're reading James where he's just saying, this is the standard. There's no like second place, third place. There's no like different grades, B, C, D, E, F, Christians. There's only pass or fail. And that's what he's presenting to us. And he keeps doing it, he keeps doing it, he keeps doing it. And if you're reading carefully, you know you don't measure up. You know you don't control your tongue. You know you don't control your thoughts and your feelings. You know you show partiality. And it would be easy to say, it's not possible. And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He takes care of that, first of all. He takes care of that thought to say, thank God that you are not judged the way you should be judged. You walking around with this worthless faith. You showing partiality. You not treating people the way that they should be treated and valuing them the way that God values them. You not being able to, to pull yourself out of, out of the, the value and the power of the world. He says to you, mercy triumphs over judgment. That God is extending mercy to us. He is not giving us what we deserve. He is not judging us based on what we currently are. James doesn't unpack all of this for us, which is fine, it's not his purpose. But we know that that mercy is because of who we are in Christ. It is because we've accepted what Christ has done for us. And now we can go and we can live in the law of liberty knowing that we're going to fail. But knowing that our God believes that mercy triumphs over judgment. But see, this comes the other side too. It's not just we receive it, but now we understand as people who've received mercy over judgment, we treat one another the same way. 
We treat one another the same way. We help others. We love others whether they deserve it or not. We have got to get out of our heads whether people deserve to be helped or not. Because if we got what we deserved, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here. It's not about what people deserve. We help them, we love them, it's because it's who we are. It's unconditional. It's so like powerful the way he does it, the way he sets us up, the way he, he's, he's got his readers just probably on one hand really angry or maybe a little depressed, you know, thinking about I cannot measure up or I can't believe he's saying this. And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And he's telling us, it's not just what you receive, it's what you give. We are people of mercy. We are people of grace. 